This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related topics from an authentically Catholic mm. perspective. Today we have an in-house guest. He's none other than Dr. Doctor's own Andrew Mullally. He's going to update us on the nefarious movements in the United States that want to give physicians the right to kill patients who want to be killed. And in Canada, they are trying to make the so-called right even into a responsibility to kill patients who think they want to be killed. We'll talk about how do we get here, what can we do about it. But first of all, we'll have a look at some uh, medical news, uh, preventive health tip, as well as medical trivia. But before we get to those things, let's start with a medical news item. Andrew, as you know, I spend most of my day curing people of cancer and putting them back together. So I was surprised when I, I found the conflation of bacteria and skin cancer in an article. It, it's one of those things, you know, a lot of people I think are surprised to realize that we have so many different types of bacteria on our skin. Some can cause disease, but sometimes they can be helpful. Yes, and in fact, I think that's a future episode that uh, we've been thinking of having. A, a past guest, Dr. Paul Carson from North, North Dakota, is an expert in what's called the microbiome. That is those bacteria that live on and in our body that we need. If you remember back to that episode, he stated that there are more bacterial cells in our body than all the rest of our cells put together, with just kind of is a, a mind bender for me. So anyway, this article released on uh, March 1st, 2018, comes to us from the University of California, San Diego, in the uh, left bottom corner of our country. And the uh, article is Beneficial Skin Bacteria Protect Against Skin Cancer. How in the world could this be? So everybody's skin has a number of different bacteria that live on it, most of them good. And in fact, uh, you are far more aware of when these bacteria come onto our bodies than most people. Why would you say that? Because I don't care for newborns. Ah, yes. There's actually, there's a lot of data around even uh, potentially babies that are born via cesarean section rather than a natural birth mm -hmm. doing vaginal seeding and the importance of developing a normal flora of the body. Right. So in other words, when uh, babies come through the birth canal, they collect all those good, healthy bacteria they need for their skin. And so, as you're saying, those who don't come through the birth canal but come out the belly need to get that bacteria. I've had a lot of questions from parents about, you know, I want to make sure the baby's bacteria, their gut flora, and their skin bacteria are healthy. What can I do while I'm pregnant? And I said, you know, actually, in the womb, it's totally sterile. Correct. So if bacteria get inside the womb, that's really dangerous. But yes. really, you have a lot to do with it during the birthing process. Yes. Well, boy, that shows a, a high degree of awareness that patients have these days to be even asking those questions. As a physician, when my wife was pregnant, I never thought about asking those questions. So what happened is this group in San Diego identified a strain of bacteria called Staphylococcus epidermidis. Now we've heard of Staphylococcus aureus, which is the staph bacteria that causes MRSA and other bad skin and other infections. Well, Staphylococcus epidermidis, the epidermis is the top layer of skin. So this is a species of staph bacteria that lives on the outer layer of the skin and rarely, if ever, causes health problems. I've always heard of staph epidermidis because it, it confuses us in the hospital. Yes. We get a blood culture and, oh, no, it looks like it's staph, and it turns out that it's just staph epidermidis. So it's not a real infection. They just got a little bit on the needle when they were taking the culture. Exactly. So this bacteria appears or does produce a chemical that kills several types of cancer cells while doing nothing to normal cells uh, of the body. And they identify the chemical. They call it 6-HAP, 6-HAP for 6 and hydroxyaminopurine, and it impairs, impairs, impairs creation of DNA, that genetic code for our cells. And they found that in mice where they induced skin cancers, they induced far fewer, over less than half in a group that had this bacteria or had this chemical injected into them. And they did the study both ways. So this may mean that in the future, we could take patients such as ones I have, and, and the, the worst group are those with 
uh, transplants. They have a kidney, a liver, a lung, a heart that they got from somebody else. So they have to take really powerful medication that uh, prevents their body from kicking it out of the body, rejecting it. And if we could test their surface bacteria and say, hey, they don't have this strain, maybe we can seed them with a strain that has this cancer-causing chemical, they might get fewer skin cancers. Because I often see, especially kidney and heart transplant patients, they have 100 times the amount of squamous cell cancer of the skin. And in fact, in heart transplant patients, squamous cell cancer of the skin is the number one cause of death. Wow. So this is important. That's not 100%. It's 100 times. 100% would be, you know, twice as much. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So it's an important thing. So I think this is uh, something that has a lot of potential, and it's just this brand new area. And, you know, when I'm thinking of high tech as we go along, you think of these things that are hard to understand. Well, a little bit of bacteria swabbed on the skin to me seems incredibly low tech with potential for a lot of benefit. So I love reading articles like this. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where Andrew Mullally and I are discussing the news of the day and now transitioning into Andrew's patented preventive health care tip of the day from the USPSTF. I uh, beat you to it. You got it, <laughs> USPSTF. And this one comes to us from January of 2012, and this organization recommends that women be screened for osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a weakening of the bones that many of us have heard about, and the recommendation is that women older than 65 years old be screened with what, what we call a DEXA scan, or, or people who are at higher risk under 65 years old. And so the top three things that you really need to know about osteoporosis in this screening is, number one, you have no symptoms. Uh, there's no symptoms until you have a fracture. Vertebral fracture is the most common. That's how some people, as we age, people lose height. So if even a man ever really lost over an inch and a half of height as he aged, that would indicate at least a couple vertebral fractures, and even a man would need screening. Is there a part of the spinal column where these fractures are most likely to happen? You know, that's a great question. I don't know statistically if there is. In Just in my experience, I see thoracic ones most commonly. So the middle of the back, not the lower back. The middle of the back. And that's why frequently as people age, you see them begin to kind of hunch. Yes. And re- you can almost envision instead of having a cube or, or a cube-like shape of a, a spinal body, um, it becomes more of a wedge. And yes. so if you stack a bunch of wedges together, you get an arch rather than a tower. Yes. And that's how... Well, that's very pretty, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how people begin bending forward and also lose height. And so those are vertebral fractures. However, the hip fractures are the ones that I think are the most scary. We know that by age 80, 15% of women and 5% of men have hip fractures. And the reason that they're so scary is because after a hip fracture, there's actually a 50% mortality in one year. Wow. So the the hip fracture doesn't usually alone kill the patient, but then a patient that was up and active and mobile now all of a sudden is bedridden for a long period of time, maybe has a surgery. Frequently these folks are older, and unfortunately about half of them pass away within the one year following hip fracture. So what's cause and effect with that? You know, I think it's it's disturbing the, the homeostasis. I mean, the osteoporosis causes the hip fracture, but then after a hip fracture, you usually have to go to the hospital. You usually have surgery. You're usually laid up. Loads of times people get either n- pneumonia because they're not moving around and breathing deeply, or they get uh, blood clots in their legs that can can go throughout their body. Um, and it, it is really, it's counterintuitive when you hear that statistic. You say, that's just not possible. But in practice, we do see that routinely where, you know, somebody who really was doing quite well after a hip fracture, it can be devastating. So it's not that something bad is going on that's causing the early death and the osteoporosis. It seems to be more a link between the osteoporosis causing the fracture leading to this downhill series of events. Oh, 100%. If somebody gets a hip fracture, you've got you've to watch very carefully for complications. But, you know, the, my kind of my second point is it's important to get tested because we can treat it, or at least slow progression of osteoporosis. The, the most common thing we use, if it's mild or really for any postmenopausal women, we recommend taking calcium and vitamin D daily, mm-hmm. 1,200 milligrams of calcium, 800 IUs of vitamin D at least, although a lot of formulations are not extremely pure and frequently people have to take higher doses of vitamin D. We, we also have medications such as bisphosphonates, which can help slow the, the bone loss, 
and even sometimes we use parathyroid hormone, recombinant parathyroid, um, a trade name for that is Forteo, people probably see advertised, where actually you can rebuild bone that was lost. There's other side effects and things, so you can only use it for about two years, but there's lots of ways to treat this. And, and one of the best ways for anybody who may not have been tested and they're just concerned about this would be lifestyle changes. We want to engage in frequent weight-bearing exercise as, as tolerated with your health status. Anybody who's smoking, they got to quit smoking. That makes it worse. we got to work on fall prevention, finding ways to minimize the risk of falls. And then anybody who has excessive amounts of alcohol use, that's also a significant risk factor. Wow, a lot of risk factors there. Is it true that most of the hip fractures happen uh, first and then they fall to the ground, or do most of the fractures happen because they fell to the ground? That's a great question. The the way I was always taught, and I I mean, it kind of sounds like if a tree falls in a forest, you know. <laughs> I, it's hard to say for me, but the, the way that I've always been taught is that the fracture occurs first. Yes. And then because of the fracture, the patient falls. I even, a, a recent hip fracture that I saw, um, this, this lady, very active lady, probably 65, she just got done with, I think, a 100-mile bike ride. <laughs> she was on this cross-country bike ride. She dismounted from her bike, and as she put her leg on the ground, she fell to the ground with a hip fracture. Oh. So it doesn't even necessarily mean someone who's, you know, sedentary and unhealthy. This lady, extremely healthy, yes. but very weak bones. So... And your third and final. My third point is if you are a premenopausal woman who has not gone through the change yet, or you're a man, in general, you do not need to be tested for this. You guys still have hormones that are active and are very protective. After menopause, especially the women's hormones, they, they stop working. The ovaries stop producing estrogen and progesterone, and that's really what accelerates the risk. So a woman's bone density is highest in her 30s, and then after that, it's it's in decline. So anything you can do to prevent it is very important. Thank you, Andrew. And now from osteoporosis, just before our break, pun intended, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. True or false? Did you get that break, osteoporosis? Oh, man, I, you're two steps ahead, I, but I sorry, like it. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> True or false? The arm bone is called the humerus and takes its name from what happens when you bump it in just the right place near the elbow where it feels kind of funny. Ah. And thus, this bone is also called the funny bone. So is the arm bone called the humerus? And is it called the humerus because it's also the funny bone? Stay tuned. We'll be coming to you again after the break with our interview of none other than our own beloved Dr. Andrew Mullally. Welcome back to the second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Andrew Mullally. And instead of playing co-host, he's now going to play expert guest. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes, it is. And today we're going to talk about a topic that's of interest to you, physician-assisted suicide and its related topic of euthanasia. Andrew uh, not only has uh, courageously started a private practice of family medicine known as Credo Family Medicine here in Fort Wayne, he's also taken on the task of being the first Indiana State Director of the Catholic Medical Association. So he's our local policy wonk. And, you know, as a lead into this topic, you know, for millennia, Human beings have believed that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings. I think it's something called the uh, Fifth Commandment. <laughs> uh, even though unborn human beings have been legally killed by the millions, uh, born human beings were not allowed to be killed or assisted in committing suicide in modern society until Oregon enacted the law October 27, 1997. The first country to do so as a whole, was the Netherlands in 2002. So in other words, what's happened? Where has the human species gone wrong? Why do people think it's okay to help other people kill themselves? Well, I, I think there's a lot that goes into that, but one of the main things that I, I kind of draw the line from is the lack of respect for human life as a gift from God, as infinitely valuable every life, because we're created in him, his image. And, you know, one of the things that I, I frequently relate to people is even looking at the medical training. 
up until, you know, really the, the rise of abortion, we always have talked in medical ethics about human dignity. People have dignity. What, what does that even mean? Why do people have dignity? Although frequently secular institutions would not pull out all the, the religious underpinnings of that, the only reason really human beings have dignity is because we're different than other creation, namely because we're created in the image and likeness of God. With the movement of abortion, in order to justify that practice, they've supplanted human dignity in medical training with autonomy. This idea that human beings are valuable because they are autonomous. Or can can make make their own decisions. decisions, Precisely. Um, However, that's got a lot of fatal flaws, one of which the more autonomous you are, the, the better you are. The, the strong are better than the weak. Um, the healthy are better than the sick. And for the people who cannot explain their autonomous decisions, such as newborns, disabled folks, elderly folks, demented, really a lot of little kids, up until they're two, then they tell you exactly what they want. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, if, if you're not autonomous, then all of a sudden you don't have any rights, and so it becomes very easy to marginalize folks. And where does this idea that autonomy is a supreme value come from? Basically because they, you know, I think the secular ethicists, as, as they would describe themselves, <laughs> identify the importance of human beings being given respect. But if you take away value, especially value given by God, it's very hard to to explain why someone else's due respect, especially if you're trying to work into your worldview the idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong. Yes. It's just a bunch of competing interests and no moral objectivity. Autonomy is really a, a shadow of what they really should be talking about. And, and so that's how we get into all these problems. So this brings up, uh, you know, a very complex two-word phrase, philosophical anthropology, and people will just roll their eyes, and usually my wife is the first one to do it at me, but (laughs) what that phrase means is what a person is. We have lost track of what a person is. And uh, I think, you know, in the Catholic Church, you know, the non sum dignus, Lord, I am not worthy, dignity is worth. It's we're worth something because God is worth an infinite amount, and so Therefore, we are. And once you lose that, you're right. It all goes down the tubes in our our medical training. Well, two terms that we hear now are physician-assisted suicide and and euthanasia. What's the difference between the two? You know, that's that's a good question. And that's a lot of times I, I have the opportunity to give talks on this topic. And that's one of the ways I usually like to start my talks, just get a show of hands. Who can describe the difference? And recently, I was given a talk to about 800, 900 people. Was and, that uh, Lake County? Yeah, out in Lake County. And uh, I opened with that, and I'm not sure 5% of people rose their hands. Wow. You know, in reality, if this is on anybody's radar, they don't, they don't really know the difference. And so I think that's a great place to start. Euthanasia is effectively the physician or medical provider pushing through an intravenous route a medication that will end the person's life. So the physician is actively killing the patient, almost identical to capital punishment. Yes. Physician-assisted suicide, as they, they try and distinguish it, would be the physician is supplying medications for the patient so that they can choose to end their own life. So it's the patient pushing the syringe instead of the doctor pushing the syringe in Which, one sense. You know, I, I think for a lot of people that don't really want to go down to the nitty-gritty actions involved there, they would say that would give you some moral cover. Well, you're not killing the patient. They're killing themselves. <laughs> well, okay. In, in reality, if, if you went into a sporting goods store and said, I want to buy a firearm to go kill my wife, you know, and you sold them that firearm, you would be culpable. Yes. Not only religiously and ethically, but legally, you would be complicit in that act because you shared in their intention, you facilitated it, yes. and it was a, a grave circumstance. I mean, that's that's a definition not only of a mortal sin, but also someone who is actively complicit in it. So from, from a Catholic perspective, we get no moral cover, and euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are both intrinsically evil and truly equally evil, I believe. How common... Is how commonly is this allowed in the United States right now? Uh, unfortunately, it's becoming more common every day. Um, there is a group called Compassion and Choices, which, which 
Previously, it was known as the Hemlock Society, which I thought was a lot more um, <laughs> poignant title. We could kind of figure out where they were going. Compassion and Choices sounds nice, but it's very nefarious, truthfully. And they're an organization that pushes this nationally. So currently, it's legal in six states, California, Colorado, Montana, really just by court order. There's been no law in Montana, but the courts have allowed it to proceed without prosecution. Oregon, Ver Vermont, and Washington, as well as Washington, D.C. itself. And so this is something that almost on an annual basis, Compassion and Choices, they've got a huge war chest, $20, $30 million um, from frequently very liberal pro-death uh, donors throughout the country that keep funneling money into this. And so they go and push this issue in all the states. I understand that uh, there's a linkage between this movement and that of living wills. It, to, to some extent, I think you could trace kind of the, the heritage back to living wills, although I think people can use living wills in a way that's not evil, uh, and you cannot use physician-assisted suicide in any way that is legal. Uh, Good point. And so I wouldn't say living wills are necessarily terrible. It's the idea that, you know, as you get older, maybe you can't speak for yourself, uh, especially people with, you know, memory deterioration like Alzheimer's. And so they wanted to kind of make their wishes known for the end of their life. This is something that has become more and more popular, but I think has always kind of been there. You know, if I had a nickel for, for every time they said, Doc, I just don't want to go on one of those breathing machines. You know, I, it's just a non-starter for me. Let me go. If it's my time, let me go. And people have the ability to make those decisions and the r right to really reject care that the burden is disproportionate to the outcome. Um, however, it's different for them to say, hey, doc, you know, when my time comes, I really need you to kill me. And now there, there's a line in the sand there that's been crossed. And so I think living wills still could add some benefit. Um, but one of the things I, I encourage folks to think about, I know Dr. Fernandez talked about this, is appointing a durable power of attorney, someone you trust to help make those decisions at the end of life so that all the eventualities that we can't even hypothesize yet, when they come to pass, somebody can make a reasonable decision rather than, you know, he said he really didn't want to take any antibiotics ever again, but gee whiz, if we could give him this one pill, he wouldn't die today. I wonder if he would have thought that's too burdensome. You know, so there's, there's a lot of times you get yourself into corners, and so I don't necessarily recommend living wills tell you the truth. It's better to have a living person who can adapt to the situations, which are much more complex than we can ever plan for in a written document. Is it true that kind of the obfuscation of language has been an important part of this movement of physician-assisted suicide? That is, using language to confuse instead of to clarify? Oh, yeah. I, th I think that is uh, one of their primary strategies, to tell you the truth. And, I mean, talk about uh, being disingenuous. If you can't even win on the points that we're actually talking about, we're going to try and confuse people about what we're actually talking about to win more points. I mean, that's just as low as you can get. Um, one of the things that we saw come to pass recently is the, the differentiation uh, or the attempted differentiation between physician-assisted suicide and physician-aided death or phys physician comfort in dying, you know, other phrases like that, which... Comfort in dying. You know, what in the world are you even trying to get at? And uh, the, the idea is that they're trying to push physician-assisted suicide by calling it not suicide, because suicide people have a negative reaction towards. Almost sounds like it's written on their heart. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, but by changing the language, they think they can get more ground. However, I'm happy to report, even last year in 2017, this came up in New York with the Supreme Court of uh, the state of New York and the judges who are not especially pro-life or, you know, pro-patient safety necessarily, they unanimously agreed that physician-assisted suicide is the same thing as physician aid and dying, physician-assisted death, any other euphemism they want. And so from a legal perspective, they've, they've said that these objects obfuscations are just totally useless, and they're going to continue referring to it as physician-assisted suicide. Andrew, you and I both grew up in Michigan and heard when we were younger about this frightening, unbalanced pathologist named Jack Kevorkian. Dr. Death. Yeah. Tell us about him and his role in this movement. You know, 
I, I'm trying to remember. When did he pass away? Was that 97? I honestly don't remember. He, I think maybe 97 was when he, he was at his peak, and then he passed away in prison after that. Thank, thank goodness he went to prison. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian was a pathologist. For, for our folks playing along at home, pathologists look at uh, slides sometimes and frequently body parts of people who have passed away. They don't see live patients. So I've always kind of thought tongue-in-cheek that Dr. Kevorkian was just looking for more work when he talked about the importance of euthanasia. And he set up even a mobile unit in a, in a van where he would go around and kill patients that wanted to be killed. He did this live on 60 Minutes in the 90s. And so this kind of brought, you know, this desire for euthanasia by some folks and physician-assisted suicide into practice in a national spotlight. And thank goodness, the great state of Michigan, if you seek a pleasant peninsula, all you have to do is stop and look about you. Oh, <laughs> very good. That's the state, state motto. motto. Yes. Um, the <laughs> great state of Michigan correctly prosecuted and imprisoned Dr. Kevorkian for killing dozens of patients that could be proven, although he, he even uh, alleged to killing a lot more. And I think it, it really brought this idea into the national spotlight for the conversation. Is this something that we can, as a society, condone or not? This is fascinating and sad information, and we want to get back to more of it after uh, a short break. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio with a trustworthy source of information for Catholics and everybody else. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. I'm Dr. Tom McGovern, your host, interviewing today our guest and normally co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally, about physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Andrew, what tactics do proponents of physician-assisted suicide use to try to convince other people that euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide are, are good things? Yeah, they, I, they like to employ primarily uh, not only changing up the language to make it plenty confusing, but also to work primarily out of empathy. Most people, when they can't win an argument on truth, facts, logic, or reason, they will appear, you know, they'll appeal to empathy. And so frequently compassion and choices will bring out kind of the poster child for euthanasia. They'll bring out someone who is well-spoken, well-educated, sadly in a terminal condition, and suffering great pain. Now, we know in reality, in peer-reviewed literature, even JAMA, which is not a pro-life organization, said that less than 2% of people actually die in pain. We have amazing ability to control pain towards wow. death. And if you're in pain as you're dying, I think you need to get a better doctor, not one that's trying to kill you, literally. Yes. Um, but the compassionate choices folks try and find these people that are suffering this pain at the end of their life and say, if only I could make this pain stop, I've been told this is the only way. And in reality, that's a false dichotomy. That's not a real decision, and it's not accurate information for them to make this decision. So really, I feel like those patients are quite manipulated by this organization. It's just like those who try to promote abortion with the life of the mother argument. That's a virtually non-existent case also, isn't it? Precisely, yes. I'm I'm not aware of a situation where you'd actually ever have to kill a child to save the life of the mother. Sometimes you have to take risks for both lives, but you never actually have to kill someone to save another right. life. That's an action. You're not allowed to kill people, even if it's going to save somebody else. How can we help our listeners see through the weaknesses and the arguments for euthanasia? You know, I think the, the biggest thing I would focus on is I would, I would look at it in practice. You know, it, doctors foundationally, I think, are, are scientists. And so we try and observe nature, make hypothesis, test hypothesis, and hopefully learn from our mistakes. We don't have to go back 2,500, 2500 years when Hippocrates told us <laughs> that this is a bad idea. And for the last 2,500 years of cumulative knowledge and reason, people have agreed with him. We're smarter. This is 2018. We know better than the last 2,500 years. I would assert maybe we should just look at 2017. Maybe we should look at right now or even the last 10 years in Europe, which historically are always about 10 or 20 years ahead of us socially on, on progressive issues. And we can see that half of the nurses who work in the euthanasia units in Belgium, I believe, admitting to, to killing patients with no consent. 
Oh, so half. can't find family. I mean, it, you can probably remember back in medical training, caring for folks that, you know, they came in, maybe they were, quote, found down uh, somewhere in the street. There's no family, no loved ones, no one to kind of claim the patient and help yes. make decisions. What do they do in Belgium? You're toast. They're going to kill you. And they don't even really care to get consent. Consent's nice. It helps the paperwork. But there was another uh, lawsuit recently where the the committee that's supposed to approve each of these cases, euthanasia, we had several members resign from that in Belgium because they said, this this is a rubber stamping act. There's widespread manipulation of this, and they can't even participate. They're in favor of euthanasia. Yes, and yet they're- They're still stepping away because wow. they said there's so many abuses. We had a ballerina who was 26 years old who couldn't dance well because she had arthritis in her feet uh, commit euthanasia. <gasps> we had- twin brothers. One brother, I think they were in their 40s. One brother was terminally ill. The other one was healthy. Double euthanasia. He said, I couldn't live without my brother. Um, spouses. One of the number one reasons that we know, again, from JAMA that people seek this out is not for pain. It's because of a fear, a fear of being lonely, a fear of being a burden, a fear of losing their ability to do things that they like. So in every other age group, that's called depression. Yes. or anxiety or another mental illness. But sadly, these, these laws have no protections for that. If, if the doctor who's trying to kill you thinks that it's important to get a psychiatrist referral, then they're able to do it, but it's not mandated. And so one of the things we also know, coming near death, 80% of people can experience depression. So effectively, most people will be depressed as they are dying at some point or another. Yes. That's not addressed. They don't try and counsel the patient. They don't try and use any number of good medicines that could help the patient. They don't even really talk about it. If a patient comes and wants to kill themselves, they encourage them and let them go through with it. Whereas I always go back to, to the idea of the autonomy and the utility. This person is old. They're frail. Their life is useless. Let them kill themselves. Now, I have people come to me depressed and suicidal frequently, and when you have for, for example, another situation, like a 14-year-old girl who broke up with her boyfriend and she's suicidal, Indiana is one of the, the top states in America for teen suicide. Oh. When we have a teenager who's suicidal, we say, no, don't do that. You have so much to live for. You're not thinking about this accurately. There's so many people that love you. This will pass. Let us help you. When we have an elderly person who's depressed, we say, yeah, yeah, you, you probably should end your life. You'd be better off dead. And so when you've got a medical community that's sending that message, the only thing you're saying is, we do not value you. We're marginalizing you because you can't speak for yourself. You're weak. You're not contributing to society as, you know, opposed to someone who is young and healthy. No, we value you. We want to make sure you don't kill yourself. But if you're elderly and depressed, tough luck with euthanasia community. They want to, they want to kill you. What a screwed up society we live in. Fortunately, Indiana has you and other physicians like you that have helped to fend off a move to make physician-assisted suicide acceptable. You were involved in one of these efforts. Please tell us about it. I think our listeners will enjoy hearing it. Yeah, I, I got involved in this primarily because nobody else was doing anything. Uh, like, like many great ideas are born out of necessity. <laughs> in, in 2016, there was a doctor who, who boldly asserted that he, he was going to push this at our annual convention in Indiana. Our convention of? The Indiana State Medical Society. Yes. And so we know uh, historically, anytime the medical society, which uh, really speaks for medical professionals in the state, whenever they go from we are opposed to suicide to we are neutral, either way, it's up to you guys. Maybe we should put it up for a popular vote. Whenever they go from opposed to neutral, always legislation follows. It's a green light for legislators yes. to see that the doctors really couldn't care less, and so they're going to go ahead and legalize it. So we, we saw that this was coming up. They were so nice to give us a little warning. So we had some time to prepare, and when it came time to go to the convention, I'd never been to one of those before. I signed <laughs> up, paid my dues, got about 30 other people to do the same, take a day off work, go down to Indy, and when that resolution came up, we, we had also submitted a counter-resolution that said, no, 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 we're going to not only 
not be in favor of it, but we are going to be permanently opposed as a state. We've never had to do that before. Uh, it was common sense forever. But now when those resolutions came up, they were debated equally. There was three physicians from Indiana that got up and spoke in favor of suicide. And we had the benches. We were clearing the benches. There was 30 doctors, <laughs> all these guys. They were cutting us off. They're like, okay, you guys only got a minute left each. You know, and so we uh, we definitely made our voices heard, and I was so happy to see the medical community come together and say, this is not only bad for doctors, it's bad for patients, it's bad for our country. So we, we rejected the movement for euthanasia, and we put in our own resolution, which got approved, that said we are permanently opposed to euthanasia. And so that gave us the ability when last year and this year, laws, really bills, were brought before the Indiana General Assembly to say the doctors have already spoken against it. They're against it. And so it, it has died in committee both in 2017 and then the 2018 session as well in Indiana. So thank goodness, I think, for, for doing a little bit of legwork ahead of time, we are safe for the moment. But I know they're going to be bringing this back on an annual basis. So now it's, it's my desire to try and pass this information on to patients so that they can be their own advocates. Because I, I think primarily this is a patient safety issue. Absolutely. And an issue where patients want physicians who think like they do that they're not going to kill them no matter what. Yeah, wouldn't it be? I mean, I always thought it was a huge conflict of interest. I mean, when when you have a chance to see so many patients, you have ones that are challenging medically. You know, we're human. We can't figure out what's going on with everybody. Sometimes patients have challenging personalities. Yes. You know, what a conflict of interest to say, you know what, this patient's been getting on my nerves anyways, or I just don't even know what to do with them. We've tried everything maybe you should kill yourself. I'll help you. I mean, how can you as a doctor be trusted to always have the best interest of the patient when one option is, yeah, we've been trying this for a while. Let's let's kill you. You know, especially in the age of cost control in medicine when a lot of doctors have a budget that they're allowed to spend per patient. You spend that budget, it's coming out of the doctor's salary. So you have got multiple conflicts of interest, and for a doctor to be able to say, yeah, maybe you should kill yourself, I think that there's, there's no one who could be trusted to make that decision. Since this is primarily a patient issue, what can patients do to help prevent it from taking hold in more states? Because as I have recently read, depending how you ask the question, over half of Americans are now supportive of physician-assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right Right now, we are in the middle of really a battle, not only over the words, but also the, over the idea of, is this something that should be legal? First of all, I would encourage people to get the facts, look at it where it's already practiced, and look at the abuses that occur. Secondly, I would try and encourage your friends, neighbors, and your doctor to oppose this practice in any possible way. So you educate yourself, you educate others, and then you protect yourself. And the way you would do that would be twofold, having a conversation with your doctor and telling them about, you know, in general, how aggressive you want to be at the end of the life. And then the second thing would be appointing that durable power of attorney, someone who can speak for you at the end of life and advocate you if you end up getting transferred to a hospital where they literally are trying to kill you. You want someone who can be your advocate. And so hopefully that'll be your doctor and your durable power of attorney. So those are things they can do individually. What can they do advocacy-wise in society to yeah. help their many voices come together? Well, I think getting politically active, uh, even as simple as voting, first off, vote for people who want to protect life in general and your life in particular. Second of all, talk, talk to your friends and neighbors. You know, right now you had quoted that number about half of Americans are in favor of it. Yes. I, I've had the opportunity to do research and that 50-50 split has been true even back in the 1600s. The first time they tried to legalize physician-assisted suicide in, in America, I think, was in 1904. And it passed, I think, the House in Ohio, but then it failed in the Senate or wow. something to that effect. It was razor thin. And they wanted to actually, in 1904, or it was 1906, they wanted to put the doctor in prison if they refused to perform euthanasia on the patient. Over 100 years ago? So this 50-50 this split really is, I think, ideological. And so you've got to win people over with the facts and not just fluffy ideas that are not based in reality. 
Are there any sp- particular sources you'd recommend for patients to access? Yes, I would. Um, in Indiana, we have the Coalition Against Physician-Assisted Suicide. Many states have a similarly named coalition. That's the first place I would look. Um, the second place I would think about looking is I would look at a disability rights group who are very yes. vocal advocates called Not, Not Dead, Dead Yet. Yet. Yes. I love the name. <laughs> I love the logo. You know, And these are the folks that really are the marginalized. They're going to be the ones who are coerced into killing themselves. First, it starts as a right. Then it becomes a choice. And then it's a duty to die. You're taking up resources. You're a burden for your family. You should kill yourself. This is the narrative patients are told in other parts of the world on a daily basis. So I would check out those resources and then also look at compassion and choices. These are the bad guys. See, look at their arguments and say to yourself, does that make any sense at all? And every time I look at it, I say they've got to be crazy. And I think they are. And on that note, we'll end this uh, segment of Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Well, after that stimulating discussion on physician-assisted suicide, I thought we needed something a little more lighthearted. So today's trivia question is true or false. The arm bone is called the humerus and takes its name from what happens when you bump it in just the right place near the elbow where it feels kind of funny, and thus this bone is also called the funny bone. I, I always thought it was nice that they they chose to name this in Latin <laughs> after a synonym for the English word for funny to go back and name it humorous. Yes, un- unfortunately there is no relationship there, so the answer is false, humorous, funny, and humorous bone are actually spelt differently. They do sound the same, and so the name of the bone humorous comes from the Latin humorous, meaning shoulder. But I always thought it was kind of a a nice thing. Uh, So what happens is I've actually never thought that feeling was actually that funny. I've always thought it was kind of painful when you get that electric-like feeling. and you Yeah, that's unpleasant. Yeah, there's an area in there called the uh, medial epicondyle of the humerus where the ulnar nerve passes. Now, the ulna is one of the two bones of the forearm. It's the one by your pinky finger. And the one by your thumb is the radius. So you have the radius and the ulna. Andrew knows his anatomy. (laughs) Always impressive. So near the area where the ulna uh, meets the arm bone or the humerus, there's a nerve that goes through a curve there. It's uh, not protected. And so if you bump it just the wrong way, you bump that nerve and you get that electric-like feeling. One of the reasons I think it, it you don't get this in other parts of the body is because this is really in a, we call it the ulnar groove. And yes. so it's got bones effectively on three sides. It can't move out of the way if you pinch it. And so other nerves would be able to move just a little bit and absorb the blow. Yes. But there you get the full brunt of it. It's down in a little valley. It's not getting out of that valley. And if you come in and swoop in from the top of the valley, you're toast. So let's move from there to uh, questions from our listeners. We love questions almost as much as we love the answers. So (laughs) this is a long question. It's actually from one of my former patients who has moved to Illinois. I'll not use the patient's name, but the question is, and I quote, I have learned that cancer can spread once cut open. Is this true of skin cancer too? I've had four Mohs surgery operations. They've all been on the forehead. So this has led me to this question. Also, I had a biopsy on a basal cell carcinoma, nodular type. This bump was completely removed. I see no signs of cancer. Is it important to continue with the most surgery that my doctor has scheduled, or can I wait to see if it grows back? It's on my scalp, just about an inch into the forehead hairline. I'm a former resident of Fort Wayne, but have moved to Illinois. Thank you. You were my first surgeon and did a great job. Well, uh, first of all, there's uh, the first myth. Does cancer spread when you cut it open? This is a really common myth, and I researched it. There have actually been studies on how many people believe this, and a correlative myth is that they believe that cancer will spread if exposed to air. Have you heard these, Andrew? On a daily basis. I think yesterday I was trying to talk a person into a colonoscopy who I think truly may have colon cancer. Wow. And they said, no, if I do, I want to let it grow rather than take it out because that'll just spread it. And I said, you know, that's not really true. That's not how it works. Yeah, there is no evidence for that. And in my field of dermatology, I remember in the 90s when I was training, there were studies done on this very question with melanoma because people thought, oh, if I biopsy a melanoma, I'm going to make it spread. 
every which way this has been looked at, there is absolutely zero evidence that this happens. Now, are there cases where this could happen? Sure, there are some internal cancers. If you cut into them and they're in a localized area, they they might spill out into the opening of the uh, of the uh, abdominal cavity and seed, as we say. But that's incredibly rare and only if you're not being careful. And, and I think patients are tempted to think of cancer like an infection. Yes. Like if it touches it, now it's dirty, it's infected, that's it's going to get good cancer. Point. In reality, it's not like that. It's more like planting seeds in a garden. If you if you sprinkle the seeds, there's a chance that it could take root and grow there, but it's very small. And in reality, it's not something, it's not a reason to avoid treatment for cancer. The idea that maybe a part of it could take place someplace else. When you've got a cancer, you got to know how to deal with it. And the doctors, the, the things they're recommending are based on studies with literally millions and millions of people learning yes. how to not die from cancer. Yeah, if you think about it, and that's a great point, Andrew, cancer is relatively hard. It's not soft and squishy and cells move around. And even if they are soft and squishy, a small percentage of them, just because cells fall off and touch something else doesn't mean they're going to grow. They need exactly the right environment uh, to grow. That's why the cancer she asked about, basal cell carcinoma, so rarely spreads to other parts of the body. You have to have exactly the right environment. They rarely go through the blood. Even if you put them into blood vessels, it's almost impossible to get them to seed to another area. So, you know, your question about the basal cell carcinoma you have now, on a daily basis, I have patients come and say, hey, I don't see anything left. You know, well over 90% of the time, there is still something there. Uh, however, if I look at the original biopsy slide and it looks like the biopsy is well underneath the cancer, I might say, fine, we can wait to see if it grows back. It's not a life-threatening cancer. It's a slow-growing cancer. So with basal cell carcinoma, not all other cancers or even any other cancer, but with basal cell carcinoma, if you wait till it grows back and it was a surface cancer, not one under the surface, you might be okay. But I always recommend it's so easy to get rid of it now when it's small than to wait when it's bigger later, especially if you're a relatively young patient. And to me, with basal cell carcinoma, relatively young is under 75. Well, and I think you can tell also by some of the caveats that Dr. McGovern's putting in there. Importantly, this is not medical advice for everyone. Every case is so individualized. You need to seek out individual medical attention. So if you say, oh, that sounds like my case, I'm just going to not worry about it, you could be putting yourself at severe risk. Absolutely. So for every patient who says, doc, I don't think there's anything here to operate on, how often don't I operate? Less than 5%. And that's only if the patient agrees to come back if they see something uh, grow. But there's no way I can tell any patient on the radio, no, you shouldn't have surgery for that. Uh, I can say there are situations where you don't need to, but I can't say that for, for this patient or any other. But is there evidence that cutting into a cancer spreads it? No. It's always better to remove a cancer than to let it be unless there's something I am unaware of. It, it would be secondary to probably other conditions if surgery were too dangerous or something of that nature. It wouldn't be to prevent the cancer from spreading. That's that's the, the point. Now, are there patients where I don't operate because of extreme age and because the cancer is not aggressive? Yes. Some patients in their 90s that have small basal cell carcinomas will just let them be. And if it becomes a nuisance for them, we'll operate. That would be an exception. But we, we never... Uh, say, let's not operate because we think we'll spread the cancer. That's something that I am not familiar with. And then a second question. Uh, we, we got a couple comments after one of our shows on vaccinations, and they were concerned with whether or not there were ways to improve the ability of the body to boost its own immunity without vaccinations. So one question we received, what are some ways I can improve the natural immunity of myself and my family? I think it's a great question, but I think the the important caveat we need to put is that none of the things we do to boost our immunity can replace vaccines because vaccines specifically train your body to recognize certain individual common invaders that boosting your natural immunity will not do. I've, I've had a lot of people kind of ask similar questions regarding, you know, God made us. He made us perfectly. I don't think I should have to use vaccines to protect my body because God planned for that, you know. And and in reality, 
I, I agree, except the one part that's not taken into account is the fall from the garden when roses started having thorns yes. and women had pains and labor. Yes. And we have disease, unfortunately. And so medicine is good. Uh, that is also in the Bible. And taking vaccines, I think, is very important because in reality, for these individual diseases, there's not another way that we know of protecting yourself against them short of getting the disease and getting uh, immunity that way. And a lot of times the reason that vaccines were invented for each individual disease is that the risks of the vaccine are far smaller than the risks of the disease. Absolutely. And if we go to the Harvard uh, Medical website, they talk about several things that will boost the immune system. And remember, it's a system. There's not one specific cell or one specific chemical that's going to boost it. And they say adopt healthy living strategies. Don't smoke. Eat a diet high in fruits and vegetables. Exercise regularly. Maintain a healthy weight. Drink alcohol in moderation, if at all. Get enough sleep. Take steps to avoid infection and minimize stress. I mean, these are some common sense things that will improve the immune system. I've also seen articles, uh, my wife doesn't believe it, but I say, you know, hugging improves your immune system and and (laughs) laughter improves the immune system. Uh, And thinking on the bright side of things can also improve the immune system, but none of these will prevent you from getting diphtheria, cholera, rubella, or mumps. And, And I might add also for the pediatric patients out there that we're thinking of, you know, let your kids be dirty. There, There's this thing called the hygiene hypothesis that since the advent of really good personal hygiene with showers and soap and hand washing and all the above uh, indoor plumbing, that people actually have more allergies and are less really their immune system is weaker. So it is normal for little kids to get sick with little viruses here and there, colds, practically constantly at different times of the year. So if your kid wants to go outside and play in the dirt, it's okay to let them. You can clean them up after, but getting these exposures is actually really important for building their immune system. Just like as they get exposed to the mother's normal bacteria when they're being born. Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. And please remember, your medical decisions can have profound consequences. So please choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, psychiatrist Dr. Joshua Williams will join us to talk about how pornography might be the strongest form of drug addiction known and how viewing pornography changes the anatomy and chemistry of the brain. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.